Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are deep diving into Nella Larson's passing, which we've talked about this book a few times on the podcast at this point. In our most recent episode, we talked about it. And so we're kind of like both deep diving, but pulling back from that that recent episode where we were talking specifically about characterization. And here we're thinking about techniques or approaches to teaching the novel, which Margaret, you're going to be our resident expert here because you've taught this novel like a couple times, right? Yes. I have taught it a few times in my women in lit class. And I think I'm trying to think if it was three times. I think it was maybe three times. Um, And as you and I were talking about the other day, this novel is just such a masterclass in craft and technique and the literary themes like it's just so layered and nuanced and we were talking about how it talks about social issues that were relevant then relevant today but and does it so thoughtfully without being pedantic or um reductive Mm -hmm. and I really think this is a novel you could use in a in so many different lit courses for so many different objectives um, for so many different types of readings. Um, It's, I I would say like, it's one of the best American novels. Yeah, I agree agree with you hundred percent on that. I think maybe we should start with a a little bit of background on the novel and the author. And Mm -hmm. so this is published in 1929. And Nella Larson, it's her second book, right? Yes. 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 She had a few short stories before it, and this was her second novel. Yes. And so before it is Quicksand, which we've talked a little bit about as well, which is also a really great book. But in terms of introducing it to your students, what kind of like background or um, historical sort of cultural knowledge do you start them off with? So I would, in my women in lit class, I was always giving them context of the time period literary movement and the author themselves to situate that sort of who's the individual writing this and what's their context, because I think both really contribute to this. Um, Sorry, I was pulling up some of my notes for this. And so we would talk about a few things um as you're pulling that up I was thinking about um some things that you know I haven't taught this novel so hypothetically some things I would talk about with them like maybe on the first day or as an intro to the novel would be um Plessy versus Ferguson which Mm -hmm. feels like a really necessary like you know historical information but also I was thinking about um, Rylander versus Rylander. Do you know that case, Margaret? Yes, and we actually talked in depth about that case in my class. Yeah, because it has to be part of the influence for this novel. Do you know if there's any scholarship on that? Like that? Yes, there there is. Um, let me actually see if I signed that reading because I have um, some of my my syllabi pulled up. Okay, perfect. and so I think for this. We had read, um, yes, Rebecca Nietzsche's Reading Race and Nella Larson's Passing and the Rhinelander Case. Yeah. Um, 
And I actually ran into her at a conference. She had just spoken. And I was afterwards, I was like, are you Rebecca Nietzsche? My students love your, your article. I'm sorry. I costed her, but it was so exciting to meet someone who wrote an article that you use in, in your class that yeah. the students respond well to. And so, yeah, we used that. And this was actually one of the classes where I assigned these secondary critical texts and my students presented on them. I'm trying to remember the presentations for these, but the students really responded um, to this because they've heard things about, you know, segregation. They know that mixed race relationships weren't allowed. They know logically about like the one drop rule, but to really see it play out in this sort of legal case. And for those who aren't familiar with the Rhinelander case, it was a divorce trial. Rhinelanders were considered like, you know, American aristocracy. They were blue bloods. They hobnobbed with other. Yeah. Yeah. They were part of like that. Who's who. And the Rhinelander heir married a woman from ambiguous backgrounds. Um, People weren't really sure. So Leonard Rhinelander, a few years later, requests his marriage to be annulled on the grounds of deception. And he said he did not know his wife was Black when he married her. And that, so their marriage should be considered null and void. Specifically, the charges were racial fraud. And Instead, uh, people expected his um, wife, Alice Rhinelander, to defend herself as, no, I'm not Black, I'm white. But her lawyers decided they would lose if they took that approach. So instead, the case became, the defense was, no, you, you had to have known she was Black. How could you not know? And became this trial in how do you determine someone is Black? What is Black enough to be recognized as Black? What is white enough to be considered passing? Um, And it really undermined a lot of that one drop rule where it's like, no, someone who's just a little Black can totally pass as white. And there's no real differences that you could see. Um, But one of the most traumatic moments is Alice Rhinelander is forced to go into a room with the jury and undress. Um, she, has, she has to take her, remove her blouse so they can look at her, bla- uh, her back and determine whether or not she truly looks white or black. Yes. Um, and then also, you know, it, part of that, the coverage of that case, I think, where she was constantly referred to as the laundress or the nanny or there were all these sort of class issues here too, right? So even if she isn't Black, she's not of the right class for this kind of socialite. There's also a little bit of an interesting overlap because you brought up class where her father was a taxi driver. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is somewhat irrelevant, but Nella Larson's biological father, not too much is known about his origins, but I believe one of the theories is that he was a taxi driver. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing to note with the Rhinelander case, she had two sisters and all three sisters sort of identified differently when it came to race. Her other two sisters identified, I believe, as Black, but kind of different relationships with it. And I think it also kind of goes to show 
the spectrum that this this the Rhinelander case really exposes the spectrum that there is with race rather than a binary and and the construction of it that social construct versus like some biological mm -hmm. yeah. and I think Nella Larson is most interested in that aspect of like the construct of race the legal construct the social construct the communal individual and this is where so to get into how I contextualized it when we talked about this novel in the beginning I talked with my students about there is your external identity which is how the world sees you and identifies you accordingly, what the world projects upon you and tells you that you, what you are and what you can be based on how they see you. There's your internal identity of who you are on the inside, what you think, what you believe, what you like. And then there's your internalized identity, which is the synthesis of the external and internal identity where you are trying to navigate how you feel versus how the world sees you and how that mixes up all together. Um, and so we looked at this novel as one that's dealing with that internal, external and internalized identity and how we aren't always aware of the ways they're intersecting or influencing us, um, especially for Irene, that she very much has that internalized identity struggle that she's not fully aware of the whole time. Um, I'm talking a lot, but so to then quickly go in, I, so I, we had two different contexts for this. Um, I talked with my students about the um, African-American canon up until this point. And it was a very much an overview, <laughs> a very like broad strokes a little bit. Um, but we talked about how families were constructed in black literature, um, but also how black families were constructed in white literature um, and kind of the back and forth between that. We talked about the figure of the quote unquote tragic mulatta and how she is a familial figure. Like she's meant to point out the corruptions in the families, the lack of community, we talked about um, Clotel by William Wells Brown, and we talked about Imperium and Imperio by Sutton E. Griggs. And we also talked about Contending Forces by Pauline Hopkins, The Marrow of Tradition, and then kind of in the 1920s, as there's this consideration of motherhood, family, public life, private life, and Nella Larson entering into that. So then that's where I pivoted to Nella Larson and her background and how her biography is very intentionally murky because she was interested in constructing an identity. And she was interested in constructing the identity like of an artistic genius mm -hmm. and what goes into that. Her mother was Danish. Her stepfather was Scandinavian. Her biological father was Black. And again, murky like all of this is really murky it seems like she was rejected by her family so she loses that community she goes to school at Tuskegee I believe really doesn't like the way they teach family values there I think she drops out over uniforms for a little bit or at least has problems with uniforms I'm trying to remember now and then 
kind of really searches for her community and, and joins with the Harlem Renaissance for a little while before being accused of plagiarism and falling into obscurity. But I really put her into specifically the modernist context. So thinking about her relationship with modernism, with that subjectivity, that we're not getting an objective capital T truth. We're going to be getting an an impression of events, and these are going to be biased impressions, and that we're never going to really get solid ground. So the first passage we read as a class is the if passage, the if it was that if which bothered her, it might be, it might just be in spite of all the gossip and even appearances that we talked about last week, but focusing on that if that this whole novel is hinging on this. Well, if this, (laughs) then this, but if this, then this, and all the silences in the text that contribute to those ifs. Yes. Okay. So one thing I did want to say, it was Fisk University that she Fisk. I knew I wanted to say Fisk. Yeah. So, but, but I think you're right in terms of like that if question and the murkiness of it all, the ambiguity, and it seems really relevant to bring up like her own biography there and, and how she's grappling with that if question in this novel. So I told you that I watched um, the Netflix adaptation Yes, this morning. And so one thing interesting about that is how they deal with that if. And uh, what I think is happening is we have a lot of scenes that start with a very blurry camera angles. And in the very opening of the film, it's not just blurry camera angles, but it's like um, almost like white noise, but you can tell it's people talking, but you don't really know what they're saying. And so I think they're doing something with setting and with like, the visuals of the film to make us think about that if um but i'm i'm not sure i'm interested to know if people who maybe only watch the film and haven't read the novel would be able to pick up on that but no one should just watch this film everybody should read the (laughs) novel and then watch the film so it is like this novel is so open to play. Oh, and this is something else I, I told my students is that Nella Larson wrote in defense of um, another novelist who had received um, negative reviews for this ambiguous ending that she was like, that's the whole point. It, if the writer has done their job, you sh- the reader should be able to imagine the extension of the novel. And that is the purpose is for the reader to fill in the blanks and answer what happens next. Um, and she was interested in that sort of creating an ending that extends to the reader and, and sort of a dialogue. And I think about that. Um, so if this, then this, but if this, then this, and, and because she's leaning into those ifs, there's so much room to play as a reader where you are not just meant to absorb and just be told, yes, this, 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 and, and just passively receive the story, you're supposed to be constructing it with the writer. And so I think that's one of the reasons, one, it's just so such an incredible novel, but two, so much fun to teach because your students have more room to explore and practice and engage. Well, and so I kind of also want to talk about, I think that's connect, it's connected to this idea of like exploring and engaging um, and kind of not passively accepting or passively reading the novel but 
is it has it been difficult to, with students to kind of ground them in this idea of passing and or is it hmm, maybe my question is about like how you can give them the historical like information um like we discussed like you know the the Rhinelander case and such but especially in a classroom where students are predominantly white and this idea of passing seems separated from them in a lot of ways and so I think the novel is interesting or valuable in talking about like privilege and so like even if students don't understand the concept or they understand it they know what we mean when we say passing but it's that intellectual knowing right but not being able to like understand all the nuances of it and I think this novel is really interested in those nuances because we get not just Clara who's passing but Irene who's maybe passing sometimes and you know is it like the who is the the guy the white guy who goes to the dance oh um it's not Carl Van Vex is he like a sociologist or something no so he's actually based on Carl Van Vex um, Carl Van Beck was like a photographer, a white photographer who was friends with the Harlem Renaissance and he took portraits, including the famous portrait of Nella Larson. He took, okay. um, and he was sort of documenting the Harlem Renaissance and participating, but like somewhat as an observer, there's some controversy over him, like whether or not he was fetishizing it or not, but yeah. Nell Larson was friends with him. Okay, but he seems interested in this notion of passing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, just like the complexities of that, getting students to understand those complexities, and then also having a conversation about privilege and specifically white privilege. And so what passing does in this novel, and we get that in the very first scene with Irene being able to go into a restaurant and so but having to veil her identity in in some way and in the film she has like a hat that sort of veils her eyes so it's almost like if you can't see her eyes then you don't know her identity um, which is interesting to me yeah real fast I think it's really interesting you bring up those two scenes because I've been thinking about them in preparation for talking today where you have Irene at the, at the dance telling him that, oh, like we can always tell who's black or not. White people can't tell because you're the majority, you're the dominant, you don't have to learn the codes or anything like that. And my students and I talk about that and we talk about how there's like a truth to that of like performing for, um, in order to be able to pass or performing in order to be accepted, to go under the radar, to be accepted. But also when she is in Chicago and she first sees Claire after all these years, she thinks Claire's a white woman. She says, why, thinks, why is this white woman staring at me? Yes. Um, so she doesn't always know. And so, and I think that's a big part of Irene's character. She thinks she knows more than she does. And the novel keeps telling us that she's not seeing everything. She doesn't see the full picture. And she is not aware of her blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if she's our narrator, what's, pa- I was saying getting past us, but you know, what's, what are we not getting? Well, that limited narration is, is connected to that. What if question, right? What if this narrate the narrator changed or mm-hmm. um, expanded in some way, but also 
that notion of like some people know and some people don't and the fear of knowing even though Irene doesn't recognize Claire at first and think she's a white woman it does seem that Claire's also got that same notion which is why I'm guessing like she won't have like um like a black housekeeper or a black like maid or, or anything like that because they're more she feels they're more likely um to be able to see that shared identity or, or something. And so my students, I had them talk about passing broadly, where we talked about um, the costs and benefits of passing. So um, when Claire and Irene pass, what are the, what benefits are they trying to get? Like Irene lists them out at one point. She's like, yeah, sometimes I pass, you know, for restaurants, for theater tickets, for, <laughs> it's like, okay, so these are the benefits she thinks are worth it, but what are the costs? Um, so Claire loses her community. Mm-hmm. Claire loses her sense of identity. Claire loses to an extent her reproductive agency. She doesn't want to risk having any more children because who knows what will happen with the next pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And then we extend it further where we, I make sure to emphasize that while there are different types of passing, they are, we cannot lump them all together, that there's different contexts to them. But we talk about what are different types of passing and, and they talk about straight passing. They talk about, um, passing as like, a um, native, like white person, like someone who was born um, in the country they live in. We talk about um, passing as um, someone who's never been the victim of rape, someone who's passing as affluent, like those sorts of things. And we talk about why people would do them and what are the costs mm-hmm. and, and balancing that. And it leads them to really thinking about that external, internal, internalized identity and how, you know, the benefits are with the external identity, the costs are with the internal and internalized identity and how it creates these barriers. Like if you, you can't fully belong to a community because, and and you can't be part of a community that would support your internal identity. Mm Mm-hmm. And we talk about that, how that plays out in the novel, how that's shown. And it's a hard line to walk because I do not want my students to think the novel's like taking a moral position on this. And I don't want in our class for us to take a moral position on this. Like when we're talking about the costs and benefits, we're not saying this is why someone should pass or this is why someone should not pass. Right. Um, It's very much just how this gets connected to the narratives we tell in order to create and construct these identities and to challenge them or perpetuate them or subvert them, um, that passing is about a narrative, that you're rewriting it to be like, no, 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 (laughs) I have the same story that you do. So you can trust me, you can allow me access here. Um, I would have to think about this more, but I, I wonder if there's something useful in having that conversation where you're you're not making a moral judgment on the passing that's happening in the novel but then also looking at like what we might consider like racial appropriation today mm-hmm. right so thinking about like in Hollywood there's a lot of pushback on like Ariana Grande who is you know 
painting herself as like Latino. Yeah, we've got all these cues that maybe she's trying to say that she is, even though she's not, or even something like uh, Alicia Gaines' book, Black for a Day, which looks at like, you know, those fa- the white fantasies of race. And so there, there is like a moral, mm-hmm. right? And so like, w- how could those two things be in conversation and see the differences? And I think that would have to be a very careful conversation. Like it would need a lot more thought and planning from me um, or from anyone as the instructor, but could be useful. I will say at the end of reading this novel, my students will bring that up when we're making connections because the way my class was structured was we would start and end the novel with these um, critical texts. So you would have students and so I'd have students lead the discussion about these critical texts and then they would lead the class in a Q&A session where they would pose questions to the class for them to answer. And some of the things they could ask were to um, prompt the class to make connections between between the critical text, um, the work of fiction and any sort of other text or cultural event or whatever else. And so they would bring up Ariana Grande. They would bring up black fishing. The Kardashians came up. And I would sort of let my students talk that out. Um, because during the presentation, the Q&A sessions, I let them know up front, I was not a participant. I would answer clarification questions if they wanted to know like an objective fact, like did this happen or did this not happen? But, and I would intervene if it ever got inappropriate, but um, it never really got inappropriate. Um, my students, because it was women in the class, I think they were more open to engaging just because they all wanted to be there. It wasn't a required class, but they would have these really thoughtful conversations. Largely though, the conversation would focus on um, people of mixed race backgrounds. My students who came from mixed families and wanted to talk about that and and how um, that construction of race and being asked to choose which one Mm -hmm. um, and the performance people demanded, like, well, you don't act white or you don't act black. So you're more like X family. You're more like um, this community. Uh, versus being able to access both communities simultaneously. And they were, were talking through that for good portions. So again, as a white woman, I definitely felt it was not my place to contribute. So let them talk that out, let them work through it. And they would talk about sort of those- um, Like those dynamics of the color line, right? Yeah. And how um, they're, they, they weren't articulating it this way, but as someone listening- they were really getting into how a lot of times these identities are made by someone saying you're this and saying and giving you the performance you're expected to act out. Um, and I do think we're seeing that in Nell Larson exploring that of like, what's the performance? What performance are you going to give? How are we identifying these performances? Um, and how do these performances change over time and and can you act out a different performance my students were really thoughtful with with this novel really 
we're open to listening to one another, connecting it back to the novel and thinking through how a hundred years later, we're still grappling with these same questions. I also want to talk about how this novel is a feminist novel. Mm. And <laughs> I want to talk about how the question, um, do husbands know their wives? Oh, yeah. Because not just, Claire, not just Clara and her husband who doesn't know that, you know, like that she's passing. And we get these dynamics of like, other husbands who do know that their wives are passing, but Irene and Brian, that that question of like, do husbands know their wives is still relevant for, for them. And I think purposefully so in this novel. Yeah. It's interesting that Nell Larson gives us so many different types of relationships because obviously we have Claire and her husband who, how do you pronounce his last name? Because I always wanted to say Blue. But I've seen scholarship that reads it as Bellow. Um, so watching the movie recently, they say Bellow. Because mm, they talk about that, that he bellows. But, but anyways. <laughs> and then we have their friend who is also married to a white man. But they run their business together. He's, he's the butcher, if I'm remembering right. Um, yeah, that's the friend who her husband knows. Yes. Um, and, and so I don't even know if she's passing, like she's passing when she meets Bellows, but, but she's so married to a white man who knows they're running their business that it seems like they're a partnership like that. And showing us that you can have this sort of interracial relationship without some secrets. I don't want to say she has no secrets from her husband because we don't really see beyond that, but there's and everybody in this novel has secrets. Mm-hmm. And then we have Irene and Brian, who very opaque. Um, yes. And so it's, I like that Nell Larson's not just like, oh, if you marry outside your community, you will have a doomed relationship. She's looking at the different intersections. And Brian, as you were saying, I don't think knows Irene, but Irene doesn't want him to know her. No, Irene does not want him to know her. Um, And so Irene is not a terribly sympathetic character, at least from my reading. What would you say, Margaret? No, she's she's not. And and my students always end up disliking Irene because they see her focus on status. I, I don't dislike Irene. I think that Irene's manipulative, but I think all the characters are. It's just only Irene from that limited narration. We only see her manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like both but my students so we talk about the intersections and this goes back to what you were saying about privilege that this novel just shows us so many different intersections so we talk about her maid who's described as like darker skinned we talk about the other uh, women and men in the novel and and what position they have in the hierarchy and how Irene connects to them, relates to them or distances herself. Um, and she's married to Brian because he's a doctor. <laughs> like, And so she is like Claire, she has married a man because of the privileges he affords her. And, but Irene wants to be a part of a, a community that Brian gives her access to. And I think my students do not like that, <laughs> that 
Um, and so we talk through all of that and it's why at the end they all think that she pushes Claire. Yeah. So I think that Irene is grappling with like a lot of issues that women of her time have to grapple with. Right. Mm -hmm. And so reading her and that tie to status unsympathetically is also miss, mi missing context, I think, mm -hmm. of being a woman in the 1920s um, and being a Black woman in the 1920s. And so where she wants her husband to understand his duty to her and the family, um, but that's also about survival. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can see Clara passing as tied to survival in a lot of ways, surface and Irene, um, her, her kind of withholding from Brian or, and her desires to it, to have certain doors open to her is also about survival, but it's less apparent because those patriarchal structures are still very much at play today in ways that aren't as questioned as heavily. I think, does that seem like a fair? No, I, I agree. And, and we talk about that. And I think there's also something interesting where Claire's survival is clear because we are told about her family background. We're told about her parents and their, and their feelings. And then her aunts who treat her like Cinderella and all that. Irene's family, we don't get as much info about. We, Irene has started. Yeah. Yes. And she doesn't think about them. Where are they? So whereas it's easier to see, oh, Claire doesn't have a safety net. She doesn't have community. She doesn't have family. What is Irene's safety net? Where's her community, her, her community outside of the privileges her husband affords her that she's hosting these teas. That's her community. If she, but if she doesn't have that financial status, that respectability, she's not fundraising for the NAACP anymore. She's not hosting the balls. She's not in the inner circle anymore. And teaching a woman in lit class, they're kind of primed for that. But I will say my students, I think, are against Irene because she does not offer community to Claire. And they want to see that like sisterhood, that coming together and women supporting other women. And they don't see Irene as supporting other women. But we also talk through that. So I think you could have a really productive conversation with your students about the binaries and feminism. You're either with us or against us. You either support this or you're against it. What team are you on? And sort of the binaries of feminism and how they also reduce identities and opportunities for shared community. And I think Noah Larson is interested in that as well. Maybe she would not articulate it the same way we would in 2022, but... I think she's interested in, in the way these binaries prevent community. Yes. And so those nuances specifically about class. Mm -hmm. right? And so not only you see Claire who's cut herself off or is, I don't, I don't want to say cut herself off, but is cut off from community. Um, and that's why she sort of latches onto Irene, but then Irene if we, of that binary of you're either with us or against us kind of thing um, is cut off in other ways because of class, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and class privileges. Um, and then you have colorism, you have family, you have sexuality, you have gender, and all of these are swirling in the novel. And you can look 
I mean, when teaching the novel, you can have your students trace different images that are used with this, that you could assign your students at the beginning, like break them up into groups and ask them to track images of class, images of femininity, images of masculinity, images of color, colorism, whatever else, and see kind of what is being associated with this, how binaries are being created. Because Nell Larson's such a visual writer. We haven't really talked about that, but such a visual writer and so interested in aesthetics. And I think this is a novel that can be really useful um, for transitioning your students from observing to analyzing mm -hmm. and seeing, like looking at these images she's giving us, how they come up again and again and again, and how the meaning changes with each use or takes on new layers. And I think it's really, can be really productive to do that with identity because our students are so interested in talking about identity. And this novel <laughs> is about identity politics. Yeah. I would also assign the film. I think it tries really hard to to get that ambiguity at the end as to what happens to Claire. To, did Irene push her? Did she fall? Did her husband push her? All these things. But also back to that, like visuals and getting to different versions, right? The adaptation, I think, paints Irene as a more sympathetic character. Um, and whereas the book, it's easier to see her... I don't want to say as a villain, but it's easier to dislike her in the book. Even I think though, yeah. In the novel, it's clear how she is complicit in systems of oppression. And it's easy for our students to miss the fact that anytime you are part of a community, you are complicit in systems of exclusion at yeah. the very least. And that for Irene to maintain her position within a community it depends on people being outside of that community like to be in a community means there are people outside of that community and which is why it's hard for me to like take a moral stance with my for my students like when teaching this novel because I think they're so used to having moral stances given with these sorts of conversations, which again, leads to more binary thinking. This is right. This is wrong. And I really want them to be open to these gray areas and ambiguities and thinking through that. Right. Yeah. Do you think some, have you paired this with anything like Desiree's baby? No. So, um, when I taught women in lit, I think we read like seven novels, seven or eight novels in the class. So it was a pretty breakneck speed already. Yeah. Um, we read first her lamp and that's where we started talking about this sort of inside outside feminism, like who gets included in feminism, who does feminism exclude. And then we read house in Paris by Elizabeth Bowen. Though sometimes our first did Kate Boyle's played by Nightingale, which they hated to an unproductive point but house in paris they really liked and again it started posing these questions who who's allowed in the house who's kept outside of the house and so they were kind of open to having these conversations when we got to Nella larson's passing and then the next the book we read after this was um patricia highsmith's the price of salt 
now known as Carol. And we were more looking at it in the, like the context of whose families are valued and who's allowed to have a family, who's allowed um, in, to be included under family protection and who's not. And I think that would be really interesting. Like there's so many things you could pair this with in a really interesting way. If you paired it with Desiree's baby, how would you teach it? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I, it. Um, I was also thinking of Toni Morrison's short story. Um, uh, help me. Um, Was it tough? Yes. Uh, which is different, but also maybe connected in some way. Something. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that teaching this novel, I think also the fact that it's like, it's short and just like, it, it's on the surface, our students find it easy to read, right? Or I think they would. And it's a pleasurable novel and fast-paced. It's fast-paced, but then to kind of spend, you can spend a lot of time breaking it down, I think, because it is shorter. I also think this is a novel that is worth teaching, like, in the first third of the class. Like, I would not start with this novel because this, as we talked about, there's so much play for it this is a really good opportunity to start handing the reins over to your student. It's why I did Herland and House in Paris first, where we did more unpacking together. And passing is where I started to turn things over to my students. So there was a lot of work they were doing together. Like I would give them like find um, prompts of like, okay, find a passage that you think talks about masculinity, find a passage you think talks about femininity, break it down in your groups. And then we would talk about it as a class. And then I, we've talked about this in a previous episode, I think, but this is the novel where I would have them at the end argue what happened, but you can't use the ending to justify your answer. You have to find an, a passage from elsewhere in the novel to support your interpretation of the ending. So if you think Irene did it, what's another passage in the novel that lends credence to her doing this? If you think the husband did it, where's that? If you think Claire did it herself, if you think it's just an accident, where's that, that evidence? And so moving them to start um, doing a more holistic reading and not just um, cherry pick. I mean, there's still some cherry picking, but um and then they would do that in their critical response. So then they'd have to respond to someone and who might not agree with their interpretation of the novel. And then we would talk about it as a class overall and, and get into that ending and defending how you're going to read it um, and how you will account for other people's interpretations. Um, and, and that really got us on the path of your reading can be diametrically opposed to somebody else's. And they can both be valid. It's again, so breaking that binary of analysis of, well, which one's the right one? Cause that's what they always ask too. Like, well, so what, what really happened? Give us the answer. I don't, I can't do that. No, Larson has not given me that Cliff's notes. She wants us to figure it out and decide and defend. And that that's the best thing about this novel is that we don't have that concrete it's just the if tentative end yeah and yeah. so I think it's a really good um novel to start giving your students more agency and more 
and getting them more comfortable with the ambiguity of literary analysis. Yeah, that sounds like a really productive, like use of the novel in class. Um, They get really passionate about it too. But again, as I said, every time I taught it, most of my students were like, Irene did it. (laughs) There'd be like four students who were like- I really want- you to teach it again and show have them watch the film or show the film and see if that impacts um because I'm not sure if it will or not but you know I think she's more sympathetic in the adaptation I think they did that purposely so that you can't say definitively at the end if she did it or not mm-hmm. it is interesting because film I think it's so hard to have an ambiguous movie yeah so it's like um the way they handle it we see like a lot of arms right um and so it's like is irene grabbing clara to keep her from falling pushing her it it moves very fast there so it's it's well i think it's well done um it definitely tries to stick to that feeling of like we're not sure how this happened um but yeah um, I do want to say, because I'm open to the ending, the other thing I would love for students to track if I taught this again would just be silences. Like I tell my students to keep an eye out for the silences, but I would love to assign a group to places where sentences end. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, because even once in that final, like Claire falls out the window, pushed out the window, jumps out the window. We get from Irene, what would the others think? That Claire had fallen? That she had deliberately leaned backwards? Certainly one or the other, not... Silence, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like Nella Larson giving us the question of, what do the others think now? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Talks amongst yourselves. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's just so... So good. And there's so much we haven't talked about still. I know, there's, but we've been talking for like an hour. So we have I know. to wrap up. We talked about like shifts in perspective. We haven't talked about, you know, World War One or like the eroticism oh, that takes yeah. place, the queerness, mm-hmm. um, the Felice in it. We haven't talked oh. about motherhood. Mother, and, yeah. Claire yeah. saying, there's other things beyond motherhood and Irene being like what else could there be (laughs) um it's just so so much so wrapping up with dream course I think Paige I'm going to speak for both of us and say our dream course would be teaching passing the novel and film you could do a whole semester on that and read so much literary scholarship and film scholarship and historical texts and do a whole semester I'd say you could yeah yeah or you could do like a mini workshop you know but we want to ask our listeners what their dream course would be what if they had no restrictions no requirements what would your dream course be if you could teach absolutely anything and you can let us know at literally podcast on instagram literally podcast at gmail.com and literally 101 on twitter and so share your dream course with us and we will shout you out we'll share your dream course share it with the class give you credit and see what other people how they might teach it yeah 
And so until next time. Okay. See you, Margaret.